Okay, folks, well, thanks for uh, letting me join you this morning to talk about uh, arguments for God and, in particular, uh, a modern version of the, the so-called design argument, um, a version of that that takes place within uh, the field of a modern scientific cosmology called the fine-tuning design argument. Um, to take up Bjorn's uh, invitation to just say a very brief word about arguments for God in general, a um, couple of quick things. I think it's important to realise that there are actually a lot more arguments for God than many people realise, and certainly than you will come across in uh, many um, sort of atheistic presentations of trying to engage with this field of, of arguments for God, um, such as thinking off the top of my head, something like Richard Dawkins' uh, book, The God Delusion, for example. Um, spends a number of pages looking at, you know, here are the arguments people put forward for God and, and why he doesn't think they work and so on. Um, but he only covers uh, a small number of arguments for God. So even if his critiques of all of those arguments were correct, that uh, wouldn't show that there's no evidence for God because there are many more arguments. Indeed, a famous uh, American Christian philosopher called Alvin Plantinga uh, once delivered a very um, famous paper at a conference called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God. So that's um, like 24 <laughs> or so arguments for God. Uh, and there was a recent conference and a book published, um, a quite a high-level technical book. Um, so I wouldn't recommend it as introductory reading, but a conference where people gave papers on uh, lots of those uh, arguments um, that Plantinga had mentioned. So there's, so there's a wide range of arguments for God. And what I think arguments for God do um, is show connections often between um, God and the world. And you're trying to sort of uncover and make explicit those connections so that people can and see and understand them. But often those connections are things that, that many people kind of grasp at an, intu an intuitive level, uh, a sort of at a, a gut feeling level even. Um, and often what a, an argument for God is trying to do is, is to make precise and uh, firm the, the existence and the nature of, of that uh, connection. Uh, so, uh, with that uh, preface, let me jump into talking about the, the cosmic fine-tuning argument, and we'll do this in, in two parts. I'll sort of introduce the argument in part one, and in part two I'll respond to uh, what I think is the main, not the only, but the main objection, uh, which is the, the multiverse uh, objection uh, to this argument, um, hence calling this session Cosmic Fine-Tuning Design or Multiverse. So first of all, we need to, to, to grasp the, the sort of um, the data that this argument is trying to explain. So um, American Christian philosopher William Lane Craig um, summarizes the, the relevant data uh, this way. So scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life, and here actually we could say um, anything uh, biological or alive, uh, any complex chemistry, actually anything uh, in terms of complex physics, uh, physical uh, structures in the, in, the, in the universe actually, uh, depends upon a complex and delicate balance of 
initial conditions given in the in the Big Bang itself um, in addition to the, the, the laws of physics themselves um, these initial conditions uh, and this fine-tuning as it's called is of two uh, sorts first when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations uh, you find appearing in them certain so-called um, constants like the, the constant that represents the force of gravity that we have in the universe um, the laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants so you can you can you could imagine that gravity could be that that constant of gravity could be bigger or smaller um, and then ask, well, why is it the way that it is, rather than bigger or, or smaller, as it, it surely could have been. Uh, second, there are initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. Uh, for example, the, the amount of um, uh, entropy, or order or disorder here, entropy, or the, the balance between matter and antimatter uh, in the universe. Uh, so we have these initial conditions on which the laws of nature uh, then op operate on the basis of and both seem to be uh, finely tuned so Craig says these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life permitting values uh, so brief example a, a change in the strength of the the atomic weak force by only one part in 10 to the power of 100 i.e. a very very big number this is why we resort to, to writing it down with this powers of notation because it's it would take a really long time to write it out in longhand um, just one part in 10 to the 100 would have prevented a life permitting universe uh, the cosmological constant which drives the the inflation the expansion of the universe from the big bang is fine-tuned to around one part in 10 to the 120 um, and that's just two of these initial conditions and of course to get the overall unlikeliness of something you you multiply factors together um, so that would be one in 10 to the 100 multiplied by 10 to the 120 multiplied by and there are lots of these factors so you end up at the end uh, with a sort of back of the envelope calculation uh, with a very large number a very precise fine-tuning so the odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition existing by chance are in the order of 1 out of 10 to the 10 to the 123 power and so on so as uh, famous cosmologist Stephen Hawking said in his final book at first sight it seems remarkable that the universe is so finely tuned. Uh, maybe this is evidence that the universe was specially designed. Now, of course Hawking didn't think so, he was an atheist, um, but uh, many other people would agree that uh, not only is this suspicious but actually there's a good argument to, to be made here. Uh, so how do you go from that data to an argument from design and then we'll, we'll stop and have an opportunity for questions and discussions and then we'll in part two uh, of the talk uh, look at the the multiverse objection so that's the the data 
here's how would you mount an argument and there are different ways of mounting an argument from this but here's the way I like doing it so uh, to quote Craig again he, he argues that to to detect design sort of from empirical observation and to reliably conclude that that's evidence of design he says in addition to there being high improbability so something that's that's contingent that didn't have to be the way that it is uh, and it's there's lots of different ways that it could have been so the, the way that it is 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 unlikely so high improbability there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern a pattern you haven't just read off the the data itself he says when these two elements are present we have what's called specified complexity which is a tip off to intelligent design so it's not enough just to point at some evidence and say that's unlikely therefore design Th that doesn't work but if you can say that's unlikely and it also um, conforms or exhibits uh, an independently knowable pattern then that does in our experience seem to be a tip off to design for example uh, this is Craig's example. He says, in a in a poker game, any deal of cards in that game is equally and highly improbable. So every deal, of, every hand of cards, is one possible sequence set of cards out of all of the possible hands of cards that could be made from from the pack of cards. Right. So that's unlikely. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, you can bet, haha, you can bet that this is not the result of chance, but rather the result of, of design. Uh, and if every time a certain player dealt, he ended up with all four aces, which, which gives him a winning hand. Um, so it, it, it hits this sort of functional pattern within the, the context uh, he couldn't um, you know uh, defend himself from your crit your uh, criticism that he was cheating by saying what are you worried about look any hand of cards that I, I ended up with would be really really improbable well yes but it's kind of doubly improbable that the improbable hand of cards that he would end up with would keep being the the one that's specified as the winning the the winning hand that beats all winning hands uh, Richard Dawkins who I mentioned earlier atheist he, he atheists will agree with this uh, kind of criterion or, or, or uh, method of detecting design so in um, his book the blind watchmaker Dawkins talks about uh, seeing an open combination safe uh, and he says of all the equally improbable positions of the combination lock um, that's complexity he notes of course that only one set of positions of combination lock opens the the lock that's specification so say you have to put in three or four different numbers on the combination um, well there's lots of different sets of three or four numbers long that you, that you could pick but only one of them will open the safe so Dawkins argues that the best explanation for the open safe would be that someone knew the specific and complex combination so let's put an argument like this if we have 
this first premise, this this idea of specified complexity is a, a sort of reliable sign or indicator of design. We could say, premise one, things that exhibit specified complexity are probably designed. Well, Stephen Hawking again uh, says that the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way in order for it to be compatible with with life and so on so that's very special highly improbable he's saying it seems to exhibit specified complexity so that would be our second premise premise two the fine tuning of the universe exhibits this kind of specified complexity now if both of those premises are true then it follows that therefore the fine tuning of the universe was probably designed and if you have design then you must have a designer and of course that designer needs to um, be adequate as an explanation for the design that you see so that, that designer would have to be intelligent enough to have thought of that design powerful enough to implement it and so on um, so you might not be able to get out of the conclusion of this argument everything that a theist believes about God but it does seem to point towards a, you know, a transcendent of the universe, powerful, intelligent um, designer, uh, something more like a mind uh, than anything else that we experience. Uh, things along those lines you can get out of the argument. Yeah, so the, the main objection to this kind of fine-tuning argument is, is something called the multiverse objection the multiverse hypothesis uh, where you're you're really saying okay it looks like our universe is both specified and unlikely complex and if it were that would be an indication of design but you know what about the the idea that there are lots of other universes that, which have different initial conditions and different laws and so on um, it's kind of giving ourselves lots of throws of the dice in order to explain it we would really be saying although at first glance the universe looks like it's it's unlikely if there are lots and lots of other universes with different conditions and so on then actually you know by chance it wouldn't be too improbable that that one of these universes would would just by luck happen to hit upon the specification for bearing life and complicated chemical structures and, and so on um, so actually you're you're, you're d really denying the the complexity part of that uh, design detection um, criteria is something that actually applies to our universe by saying maybe there are lots of lots of other uh, universes you know maybe there are there happen to be lots and lots of games of poker all going on and so of course by by luck some of them uh, would um, end up having multiple <laughs> winning hands of all four aces uh, dealt in them if there are enough games of poker going on so Richard Dawkins puts the objection this way there are billions of universes having different laws and constants uh, we could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universes whose laws and constants happen you know, to be propitious to to, to allow uh, our evolution. 
so really you're ending up denying this uh, second premise you're saying yes okay it's specified but actually no not complex because there are lots and you know, emphasize lots of randomly configured universes uh, out there so that by luck actually you'd expect some of them to hit the pattern for life bearing uh, I think there are at least eight problems with this uh, multiverse hypothesis which I will address in roughly order of increasing seriousness <laughs> as it were so let me storm through these uh, first of all the hypothesis is speculative uh, as astrophysicist Rodney Holder says that the physics involved with multiverses is speculative to say the least uh, especially when it comes to um, string theory which is one of the sort of favored ways of, of framing um, this uh, objection uh, it's not really uh, an objection framed in terms of, of settled physical theory uh, it is a highly complex uh, alternative explanation um, uh, you know on the one hand you'd need to have lots of differently tuned universes why, why aren't if there are lots of universes why aren't they all tuned the same way they've all got to be differently tuned lots of differently tuned universes in order to kind of improve the odds of having a single life permitting universe or a few life permitting universes <sighs> they'd have on the other hand, you'd also, I think, need lots of life-permitting universes that were tuned like ours to improve the odds of life emerging from non-life, to, to bring in uh, some of the, the biology of, you know, Dawkins was saying, universes that allow our evolution. Well, you know, even granting the, the theory of evolution, you've got to have something able to evolve in the first place. You've got to get life from non-life, and the odds of that seem to be pretty slim. So perhaps you'd need to invoke lots of universes like ours to address that, that kind of biological uh, issue as well. Uh, so lots of different universes and maybe lots of universes like ours as well. Uh, and that means postulating many more life-prohibiting universes to make all of those life-permitting universes likely if, if you were to need to do that. But in both cases, um, you know, any scientific multiverse hypothesis also has to point to uh, posit the existence of some sort of universe generating mechanism, um, something able to produce these differently fine tuned universes uh, and to explain why there are so many and why they are differently tuned rather than all being tuned the same way uh, and so on. Well, that's a lot of complexity to posit just to avoid what seems to be common sense in a, in a way. As British philosopher Richard Swinburne says to, to postulate a trillion, trillion other universes rather than one god in order to explain the orderliness of our universe seems the height of irrationality. The multiverse hypothesis third is empirically unverifiable. Uh, so cosmologist George Ellis says that the existence of multiverses is, is neither established nor scientifically establishable. Uh, it, science hasn't shown that there are lots of other universes and George Ellis is saying actually science he thinks couldn't show that there are lots of other universes. Um, and some people would 
that would lead them to question whether the the idea is even a scientific idea uh, at all um, but that's kind of by the by because you know if it's metaphysics well we're, we're allowing metaphysics here because this is what we're doing when <laughs> arguing for god we're using some scientific data but we're mounting a philosophical argument here uh rodney holder again says um the fact that you the the empirical um lack here uh, ought to undermine the credentials of this hypothesis uh, with scientific naturalists like Dawkins, who appeal to it, who, who make this complaint about religion and religious ideas. You know, you can't detect God, kind of, or what have you. Uh, well, actually, uh, Dawkins uh, allows that if God were to exist, he, he might make differences that you could empirically detect. But certainly there are scientific naturalists um, who uh, complain that... Uh, you know god isn't empirically detectable but neither is the um, hypothesis of of multiverses sort of empirically uh, confirmable according to to folks like george ellis so that's a bit of a ruckle in the carpet there uh, fourth uh, this hypothesis is is um, ad hoc just kind of um made up <laughs> uh in order to address the the issue specifically um Dawkins, let me explain like this. Dawkins is, is kind of putting an objection that goes like this. Um, if there were enough different universes, then the specified structure of our universe wouldn't be complex or unlikely enough to justify a design inference. And then he's saying, premise two, there are enough different universes. Conclusion that follows is that our universe isn't giving evidence for design. But premise two that's flashing away here. You know, he needs to say that there are enough different universes in order to get to that conclusion. You know, remember, what he actually said is, you know, he's kind of saying, well, maybe there could be, maybe there are, but it's not empirically, as we've said, shown that this is the case. Um, so it's not actually enough to undermine the argument to say, you know, maybe there's this alternative ex explanation. Uh, you'd have to actually say that there are these other universes in order to, to undermine the idea that ours was specifically complex. Uh, put it this way, it, you know, you could say if many monkeys at typewriters existed, then they could type the plays of um, Ibsen by chance. But anyone faced with the, the many monkeys hypothesis, you know, as a, a serious attempt to explain the existence of Ibsen's plays, would surely ask if there's any independent reason to believe in the existence of X number of monkeys and typewriters somewhere. And, and if there isn't any independent reason to believe in X number of monkeys, they will favour the, the author hypothesis. Well, it's like that with the fine-tuning. Just, just saying, you know, maybe there are lots of other universes. Maybe there is a room full of monkeys typing away at typewriters somewhere. You know, a really big room full of a lot of monkeys. Uh, doesn't uh, address the issue sufficiently. A theoretical physicist Brian Green says people should be sceptical of multiverse theories because there's, there's no evidence supporting their existence. Fifthly... It's an insufficient explanation. It's insufficient to explain away the data. Um, we mentioned string theory briefly earlier. The sort of um, 
uber string theory favoured by Stephen Hawking was something called M theory. Um, he, he said it allowed for the for 10 to the 500 different universes. The, the theory could describe that number of different types of universe. So the existence of 10 to the 500 different universes would be consistent with M theory. I mean, you could have more, but some of them would have to be the same as each other, right? Um, so, okay. Hypothetically, if M theory were true and it allows for the existence of 10 to the 500 different universes, and, and you say, well, maybe there are. Let's assume there are 10 to the 500 different universes. Well, that's a big number. But remember, in the fine-tuning of the universe, we're multiplying together multiple really big numbers. So is even 10 to the 500, does that do anything to sufficiently reduce the complexity of the fine-tuning? Um, Bruce L. Gordon notes that there are many independent constants and factors that are fine-tuned to a high degree of precision in our universe. The cumulative effect of all these fine-tunings significantly erodes the, the probabilistic resources of the, the string landscape, as, it, as it's called. Six, the objection is, is question-begging. Um, so the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis, um, his book uh, The Goldilocks Enigma is all about this fine-tuning issue. Uh, he's an agnostic, as I say, but he, he notes that multiverse theories really shift the problem up a level from universe to multiverse, because he points out there has to be a finely tuned universe-generating mechanism. A mechanism that, you know, is describable by certain mathematical equations describing, you know, how this mechanism works, uh, such that the mechanism will produce universes and produce different universes and can produce different universes um, of, of a type which could hit the specification for life, rather than being types of universes that couldn't hit the specification for life. And that means that mechanism has to be finely tuned, because that mechanism could presumably have been a different way that wouldn't uh, produce different universes of the kind, or in a way that would address the issue that we're trying to address in the fine-tuning argument. So Davis, as an agnostic, says the multiverse theory cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life. It just shifts the problem rather than solving the problem. Seventh, uh, the hypothesis undermines the very practice of science itself. So Brian Greene again says the danger, if, if the multiverse idea takes root, if people take this seriously, is that researchers may too quickly give up the search for underlying explanations, which is what a lot of science is about, of course. It says, when faced with seemingly inexplicable observations, things that surprise us and go, hey, why is that the case? You know, researchers may invoke the framework of the multiverse prematurely, uh, proclaiming some phenomenon or other to merely reflect conditions in our own little bubble universe um, and thereby failing to discover the deeper understanding that awaits us. So you see something surprising in science and you try and, try and come up with a, a, a theory, an explanation for it. 
and that's how you kind of discover things about the world but if you see something surprising you say hey why is that apparently surprising thing happening and you say well you know maybe we live in a multiverse and there are you know billions and billions of different universes out there and you know that kind of surprising things are, are just going to happen uh, in some of those universes and you know so the more other universes you, you you posit out there in a sense the less surprised you come by any observation that you make and that begins to undermine the practice of science and eighth actually not only is there empirical confirmation for the existence of these multiple universes but you you could say there's empirical evidence against the existence of other universes that, that the hypothesis is actually disconfirmed by scientific observations so the atheist Roger Penrose um, in his book Fashion, Faith and Fantasy in the New Physics of the Universe a recent book of his uh, he talks about considering how ridiculously cheaper in the sense of improbabilities it would be simply to produce by by the rear, mere random collision of, of physical particles the, the entire solar system with all of its life ready made you know just by chance or even just a few conscious so-called Boltzmann brains just you know random fluctuation of, of out of the quantum vacuum particles come together and they just happen by chance to form a, a brain if conscious maybe with a, you know an eyeball attached to it uh, so it can look out on, on this empty universe um, or no eyeball attached to it and it just has um, a delusion of existing in a universe like ours you know. um, so he says the problem is why did we not come about in this way rather than from an absurdly less probable 1.4 times 10 to the 10 tedious years of evolution uh, and so on it, it seems to me that this conundrum simply points to the incorrectness of the the multiple universes the bubble universes idea uh, it, it, in other words if you want to explain the existence of of life um, there are much simpler explanations ways that it could be that the way that our universe seems to have produced life uh, it, it is just so complex and improbable um, since there are simpler ways of doing it uh, if it had just happened by chance it's more probable that we'd be observing one of those simpler ways of doing it but we're not we're, we're observing this highly improbable way of doing it as it were um, so theoretical astrophysicist and cosmologist Luke Barnes in his book with uh, Garrett Lewis a fortunate universe which is a good conversation between uh, people with different views on this, this issue uh, Luke Barnes says that the problem here is is not that we you know we might be Boltzmann brains right he says the problem is that we aren't uh, now you can get into a, a, a debate with the skeptic about whether they are a Boltzmann brain and you're just a figment of their imagination <laughs> um, but no actually uh, for serious purposes here look we're, we're, we're not Boltzmann brains even though that would be more probable <laughs> than the existence of the fine-tuning of the of the universe that we observe he says Boltzmann brains do not need cosmic fine-tuning because they, they form by means of a freak quantum fluctuations if small regions of order like a Boltzmann brain or the solar system with all of its life 
if small regions of order are more likely than large regions, Boltzmann brains are vastly more common than observers in large, low-entropy universes like ours if there were a, a multiverse. Uh, and so if we were in a multiverse and we happened to be in, in a, a, a random example of a life-permitting section of that multiverse, as it were, it's overwhelmingly more likely that we would be observing a small region of order. But actually what we observe is a huge region of fine-tuning. Uh, so Barnes says, if only very special ad hoc and implausible multiverse models avoid this, this problem, then the multiverse itself is, is fine-tuned. Uh, whereas if, if you take some of those, and I don't need to go into the details, and I probably couldn't myself, uh, of saying, okay, well, one of those very special sort of ad hoc and implausible multiverse models must be true in order to avoid this problem, then you're increasing the problems you have of, of your model being ad hoc and implausible. Which brings us back to the argument. I think there are, you know, when you add up all of those problems with the multiverse theory uh, objection, uh, I think those are very uh, a serious set of problems for that alternative uh, which would bring us back to uh, reinstating premise two and therefore reinstating the, the conclusion that we were, were drawing from the data. Um, let me highlight a couple of books here uh, at different levels of introduction for the issue. So William Lane Craig in his book On Guard for Students and either version of that book, um, he's written one for Christians and one for non-Christians but it's a really nice introduction. There's a chapter in there on the fine-tuning argument, which is a good introduction to this. Uh, my uh, own recent book, uh, responding to Dawkins' recent book, Outgrowing God, and mine's got Outgrowing God with a question mark, uh, has a chapter uh, that addresses um, the fine-tuning uh, argument, and particularly the, the discussion that Dawkins has of it. Um, Rodney Holder, who I quoted in this talk, his uh, book, Big Bang, Big God, a universe designed for life is a nice sort of introductory level um, but rigorous uh, approach to this and, and at a very high level if you want to uh, really get some of the, the details of the cosmology and so on and a discussion between two informed folks with with different views on this um, Luke Barnes and Garrett Lewis's A Fortunate Universe, A finally, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos is a good recent publication to go to get sort of up-to-date science on this. Yeah. <laughs>